Matthew. We're doing a two-part series on marriage, and the idea is staying in love, and there's kind of a, almost a little twist on that, because even the premise of that, depending on how you see it, if you have a biblical lens or a secular lens, you're going to take from that different meanings. Uh, but we're going to break that down. We're going to review from last week, and then what we're going to do today is I am going to show you, I, I have this kind of like passion as a pastor. I, I live in two worlds before I was a pastor, I got my graduate degree in counseling, and then I became a licensed therapist, and I worked with adolescents with behavioral problems and group homes and setting, settings and school settings and, and a mental health, um, you know, a mental health setting, and so I've kind of been around in that arena, and then all the while still in ministry as well. I, I did both things for a long time, and my life's to a point now where that's not possible, and so kind of my counseling background comes to the pulpit and then it's very limited outside of that. Uh, so, so there are these two worlds that collide, and every pastor has a passion. That would definitely be mine. But, but I also kind of consider myself an armchair quarterback in the sense that I kind of see myself as a makeshift sociologist in that I like to watch your behavior, and I like to study it, and I like to know why things tick the way they do and, and why culture is going the way that it's going and, and how that all kind of comes together. And so for that reason, I also, with the background that I have, love research. And here, here's what I love the most. I love when research shows us something, hear me say this, that the Bible already told us. Because unless you're late to the game, you already know this. There is a huge attack on the church and on the authority of Scripture and that the way that we live out our lives as Americans. And so uh, we have kind of turned to secularism as a nation. I would not consider us and how we live out our lives a Christian nation any longer. And so people love things like research. In fact, people love things like therapy. I, I would tell you this. I believe people, more people have therapists than pastors in our culture right now. And so what I love is I love to show how research actually tells us what we already know from Scripture to help us open our eyes to the truths of the inerrant word of God and, and help us to walk in it and things like our marriage. And so that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to show you some stuff that I learned through uh, listening to people smarter than me on how this idea of research is already backing up what we know to be true and how we love our spouse and what Jesus and the Apostle Paul have already said on the topic. And so take notes and learn something today. Here's the premise of last week. And if you didn't write it down, write it down. The only requirement, maybe you remember, for falling in love is what? Having, everyone do this together, having a pulse. And what I mean by that is it's incredibly easy. In fact, what I told you is that there are now thousands of companies worth billions of dollars collectively, maybe trillion, I don't know exactly how much, if you pay them, they will connect you with someone with a similar profile so that you can fall in love. It has never been easier to fall in love. But then here was the big idea. Although it's never been easier to fall in love, it has never been statistically more difficult to stay in love. Right? We're hardwired within us this desire to live life with someone and to be in love. But then we said this. There are a couple core reasons why this is so difficult in culture around us. Number one, the idea of staying with someone has not been modeled to us by evidence of half of us are now growing up without a father in the home. And so if you saw an in-love relationship, you probably didn't see it over a long duration, and it probably had more to do with 
being in love, lost than in love, or being infatuated than being in love, and it wasn't modeled to you. And so in our culture, we're designed to keep falling in love over and over again, but never staying in love. And so research on long-term relationships tells us that there are certain things that are critical for us, for us to have the skill set in our tool bag, per se, to stay in love when we're raised. And those things are, we're modeled respect growing up, encouragement, comfort, security, support, acceptance, approval, appreciation, attention, and affection. And if we have all of these things, then we have a better chance of understanding how to model then this in-love relationship over a long period of time in our core relationship of marriage. But the problem is, you didn't have that. And then the other problem is, the person that you're infatuated with didn't have it either. And so you can see why the divorce rate, even in a secular sense, can get so out of hand. We just don't have the skill set. And so seven years later, peak rate for divorce. You want to be in love, but life is overwhelming. And you end up throwing in the towel. Happens all the time. Kids now, with mom half the time, dad half the time. Finances are tighter. Divorce rates go up incrementally, the next marriage. And at some point, we have to look in the mirror and say, I, I've been told that this is how it works, but just empirically, I can't be right because this isn't working the way it's supposed to work. Second thing is this. Our culture has a very low relational pain tolerance. That's why we don't stay in love. The Bible says, till death do us part. We say it in our vows at every wedding. But the reality is it doesn't have to hurt that bad to get out. Because if you're not happy, it's not because you're the wrong person. It's because you fell in love with what? You fell in love with the wrong person. And so now, instead of making personal changes or maybe repenting and, and bringing yourself before the cross and saying, God, reveal to me what I don't understand and this idea of love and staying in it, instead of doing that, you look to the person to be the problem and you hit repeat and over and over again, divorce rates get higher and higher and higher. And if you are with the wrong person, you chose poorly, so now what you need to do is you need to rechoose. And you rechoose by all sorts of means that are unhealthy. You go back to the high school yearbook if you're of a certain age. But for most of us, the high school yearbook is the social media page that we've fallen in love with. And we find that person. Maybe it's a coworker, Maybe it's someone from high school on social media. Whatever the context, all of a sudden now we want that endorphin release again. And shocker, it doesn't work because instead of looking outside, inside of us, we look outside of us. So what does the Bible say? What, what is love fleshed out actually look like? You're going to see a scripture on the screen that you saw last week, John 13, 34. Jesus gives us a way of loving. He says this, a new command I give to you, John 13, 34, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you were also to love one another. And so what we said was this. That Jesus took a word that we normally use as a noun. When you, when you think of the idea of falling in love, you think of it in terms, in secular terms, of as something that stands outside of you. That's something like pixie dust, that all of a sudden you're walking down the street, right? Have you seen the movie? You make eye contact, you have the coffee time, you build the relationship through text, and all of a sudden now... The, you know, the love God sprinkle fairy dust on you, you fall in it, it stands outside of you, it's this noun, it's this thing. 
And Jesus is saying, well, that, that's never how love was designed to work and evidenced by this. That's not how I loved you. I loved you by doing things. Ultimately, I loved you so much, I went to a cross to die for your sins, and then I rose from death so that you can have life. And so what we said was this. We think of love as something that we fall into like a pool and out of like a high chair, and the Bible just never defines it in that way. And so we said this, that love is a verb. And the foundation for staying in love is to make love a verb. And that stands in contrast to what we've understood to be true if we don't look to the Bible for our truth. In the relationship, the feelings are the back of the train, not the engine. They're the caboose. And when you actively love one another, it fuels the in-love relationship. Here's the reality. Here's the reality. So pay attention to this. If you're not a Christian and you've studied relationships, if you've just kind of followed research on how relationships work, you already know this is true. If you, if you go to counseling for marriage counseling, they'll tell you some of the same things. You just won't hear it in the culture around you. If you've actually been a student of how relationships work, you already know this to be true. It's, it's really undeniable. And so then the Bible tells us that we're to make love a verb. And Paul comes along, he gives more definition to it, Philippians 2, we'll just read a couple of the verses here. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests or her own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so when you take this idea of marriage and covenant and you say, hey, we're going to put love on display, we're going to make it a verb, here's how it fleshes out. You're going to take love and you are going to put it on display in a way where you now consider the person that you're with, that you have become one with, more important than yourselves. Paul's talking to the church. It translates to your marriage. That's the verb on display. Loving your spouse more, and more than yourself. In humility, counting them more significant. To act like someone is more important than you is critical. And it's not more important with you, within you as like an intrinsic thing where they have more value in the way that God created them. But they're more important than you, not in an intrinsic way, but in a positional way because you're, you're choosing to make them more important than yourself. We talked about the idea and we just had a wedding yesterday. When you go to a wedding, who's the most important person that's in the room before they even get in the room? Who is it? It's the bride. It's second to who? Second, no, not second to the groom. Second to nobody. Come on now. <laughs> second to the groom. The groom stands right here. And I tell the groom every wedding, I say, get up here and just stand here. And they're sweating. I had a wedding yesterday. The guy was so nervous. He was, he was pouring the, the sand. It was like, you know, the, there's either the sand ceremony, the knot ceremony, the candle ceremony. It's all the same thing. It's just different ceremonies to make money from Hobby Lobby. But whatever. And so... <laughs> And so, he, like, he was so nervous, he was just shaking the sand. We ran out of the song. He was still putting the sand in with his wife, and he was just shaking. And it really didn't matter. No one was looking at him. He didn't look pretty. He didn't have that, you know, positional importance. It wasn't his day. It wasn't please rise for the groom. No, she had positional importance. Everyone made a decision, including myself, because it would be, you know, like professional train wreck to not get this that she was positionally more important, that we were going to make her more important than ourselves because that's what you're supposed to do. And the way that that's defined is you defer to them. 
that their opinion matters. And the funny part about this is whether you have theologically thought through it or not, and maybe you've never looked at Philippians and gone, you know, that's how I'm supposed to treat people because Paul says that to the Philippian church, and I found, you know, like you never really thought about it, you just kind of knew it, evidenced by when you fell in love, you already understood that that's what you were supposed to do. How many of you, before you were married, when you started courting or falling in love with the person that you're sitting next to now in church, you just kind of got that on an intrinsic level? True? No one? No participation in church today. You didn't get that? I got that. I took my wife and Ellendale on dates to get chocolate milk and cheese sticks. I had about 50 bucks in my account. If my grandma put it in my account, she'd mail me a check. It was before you could put it in the account. My mom would send me a little money. I'd take Ann somewhere nice like Guadalajara's in the big city of Aberdeen when the mall actually had stores. Like no, no one had to tell me that I was supposed to positionally make her more important than myself. I just got it. She was my most valued possession. And shocker, that, that had some residual effects that were very positive. And I know this is going to shock you even more. That was hard to sustain. Like, I, I, got, I didn't quite keep that up. And, and just to be fair, she didn't quite keep that up as well. But what research shows is this. This is the research. This is the Bible. People who stay in love take what used to come natural and do it with intention. Let me give you a quick sample. We'll move on. And then we're going to really hit home this next point. We're going to close this thing out. And the next point is really why we're doing the whole thing. The next point just kind of really spoke to me. And I thought, I want to talk about this in church. But let me give you a quick example. Friday night, each Friday night, I told you last week I'm more of the emotional person in the relationship, and my wife is not. But Friday night, I said, well, let's go to dinner. And we got, we live on Richmond Road. You guys have been there, right, with the, with the, with the worship nights. We got to the end of Richmond Road, and I turned left towards North Dakota. And she said, what are you doing? I said, I have a, I have a surprise for you. Uh, we are going to go to Ellendale, and you are going to watch me play in an alumni basketball game. <laughs> and she's, she was so happy. <laughs> and she said to me, she said, why in the world? I've worked so many hours this week. I've got this. I've got that. Why would you not at least tell me? And I said, because if I told you, I knew you wouldn't come, <laughs> which is true. She, there's no way she would have said, hey, that's for you, go live your glory years, waddle down the court, do your thing. And so I brought her with me and she sat at the top of the bleachers and she was texting and every so once in a while she'd take pictures of me and then she showed me the, showed me the pictures after the game and they, it was like there was an imposter living in my body, there's no way that that was me. And I think she was just taking pictures to shame me, to show me what I actually look like <laughs> as a man in his 40s who needs to lose some weight playing basketball. And, and so my point would be this, Loving your spouse more than yourself, how that kind of transitions, and then research showing us that couples that what used to come natural, now they do with intention, that couples that put this on display have this reality of having healthy community or healthy relational marriage. And so, so my idea was this, there was a time, okay, there was a time when she would have been honored, <laughs> honored to drive to Ellendale with me and see me in all of my glory, and now it has to be intentional, even by avenue of manipulation on my part. That's how that kind of fleshes out. Paul talks about that. He says, operate in humility, putting that other person 
above yourself. And so here, here's the one today. That was a long review. But I want you to write this down. Because, again, Paul's going to talk about how to love in a very famous text on love in Corinthians. But he's going to do through, so through the lens of something that we want to apply to our marriage. Here's what research shows us. Couples that have the most fulfilling marriages believe believe the best of their spouse. That, that sounds simple, but, but for me, and when we explain that, and I'm going to show you kind of what I mean by that, for me, that's, that's profound. They believe the best. Here, here's the research. There is a book a while ago. In fact, if you didn't write that down, trust me, write it down. There, there is some older marriage literature written by a guy named Marcus Buckingham. In fact, he wrote, a, he wrote a book, I believe it was in the 90s. It was a leadership manual he wrote. And in this leadership manual, he had this section to kind of cement his point or his theory on marriage. And here, here was the idea of his leadership manual, that there is one principle to succeed in each realm of life that you wish to conquer. The theory was this, that although there are many things, there, are one, there is always one thing that drives everything, and so he used this illustration and this research of marriage to make his point. That in the construct of marriage, there is one principle that will guide the whole thing, whether it's not successful or whether or not it's not as successful. And so what they did was they studied couples. Who in here has been married 10 years or more? Look at that, right? Anyone newlyweds, like two years, less? Anyone maybe in this region right there? Raise your hands high. All right, take notes. Researchers came together. They looked at a bunch of happy couples that have been together 10 years or more, and they had this overarching idea and this question, what is the one thing that drives it? So what they did is they already knew this from previous research, and they assumed they knew the answer because they asked the inverse question, what is the one thing that destroys Marriages, or what is the one common denominator in unhappy couples? And it, it was kind of just something that you would expect. And when they were answering this question, they looked at it through that lens, and, and they knew this about unhappy couples, that in unhappy couples, there was a huge disconnect in understanding what the other person in relationship was actually like. And, and more specifically, unhappy couples do this one thing. They paint their spouse in a very negative light, right? How, how many of you are like, well, that's shocking, that's shocking. They paint their spouse in a very negative light. And so there was an underlying assumption when they did this research that when they studied the happy couples, they would find a very realistic understanding of what the other person was like. And so, and so in, a, in a content marriage, you, you would look at it realistically. You'd say, well, here's their strengths and here's their weaknesses. And I've kind of learned to live with those things that I wish I had. But hey, that's the way God created them. And you know, this is what God's called me to. And if you were to ask me before I read about this, I would say, yeah, I would say that's fairly accurate. That sounds about right. And so they looked at unhappy couples. They said the common denominator is that they were overly negative. They painted them in a, a negative light that was beyond actually what they were even, you know, not accomplishing in the marriage or, or not accomplishing in their own personal lives. They, they saw them and it's like everything they thought about them was negative no matter what the thing was. 
And so then the spouse would be given a questionnaire, how do you rate on these things? And then you know, the, the other spouse who was negative would have the same questionnaire and they would rate themselves or the other person lower than the person rated themselves. And so they just thought naturally, well then the other couples would be realistic. And the irony is this, they were the exact same, but look at me, in the opposite direction. The most fulfilled marriages had a viewpoint of their spouse that was unrealistic. Except for in their bit of delusion towards their spouse, it was shifted in a positive direction. So the husband would get a test, he'd rate himself in certain areas, and then the wife would get a test about her husband and she would rate him in a much more optimistic fashion in the same key areas. The other spouse consistently gave higher ratings over and over and over again. And here, check this out. Here was the conclusion. Are you ready? Love actually is blind. That's what they decided. Love actually is blind. That these happy couples did not have a realistic view of their spouse, but they chose to believe the best about them. Here are the specific findings. Here, here's how they kind of laid all of this out, that a spouse's positive illusion created an upward spiral of love, and the illusion created a conviction, and the conviction led to security, and the security fostered intimacy, and the intimacy fostered love. And so what they chose to do, and write this down, when they looked at the deficits of their spouse, they chose to find the most generous explanation for the behavior that their spouse displayed and they believed it. Here's the caveat to that. That's not saying that we walk in delusion when there are major character deficits. If someone's being unfaithful to you in your marriage, it probably wouldn't be wise for you to then in turn go, well, I'm sure, you know, like whatever. I'm not even gonna keep going with that analogy, right? I mean, there, there are certain deal breakers where you have to work through it, but it's the little things. It's like death by a thousand needles really in marriage but the definition of believing the best was to prescribe motive to behavior that is generous in explanation. Let me give you examples. Right, she's not impatient. She's just intense. That's just a reframing, and it's, a, it's like a positive reframing instead of the person who's unhappy in their marriage who's saying, you know, she's not impatient. She's a barracuda or whatever you want to feel, right? He's not insensitive. He's just focused. They take the same thing, and they believe the best. And research shows that this actually creates more marital satisfaction. And so here I have these signs. We're going to show you a scripture in Corinthians in a minute, and we're going to come back to them. But here's what I want you to see about these signs, and I have one hitting just to build, hiding just to build suspense. How many of you are just on eggshells right now? If you're sleeping, wake up. I'm offended. Are you ready? Here, here's the idea. That every relationship, it doesn't matter if it's marriage or not, that every relationship that you've ever had, but most specifically the most important relationship you will ever have, 90% of you will get married, has two things from each different person. Every relationship, the one party has expectations, and then the person that you say yes to for till death do you part displays behavior. And so here's what we do in our own delusion. I'm going to open your eyes to this reality. And you can probably just, like, 
Think of your own life and go, that, this is exactly what I've done in the last 10, 15, 20 years. This has been the massive focal point of my frustration. This is the delusion that you, that you believe when you say I do. And you get told things like by your pastor in premarital counseling that, that expectations and behaviors aren't going to line up and that you can't change another person. But how many of you thought, well, they can't, but maybe I can, right? Here's what you do. You think in your mind, if this person who's displaying this behavior can somehow move over here and these two things can melt together, then we'll have marital satisfaction. Are you guilty? That if somehow these two things can take the gap and close it in, now we can go somewhere as a couple. And here's what we know to be true. That in every marriage, there will always be a gap. Always. You married two months, you married 20 years. There's always going to be a gap between the expectations that you have for this person and the behavior that they display. And the goal in all of this is not to somehow close the gap, but the goal in this is to fill the gap. And when you fill the gap with the mind of Christ, the way Paul's going to outline in Corinthians on how we actually love, there are two choices that you have. This is the choice that so many of us make. We would love to make it about not being a Christian, but Christians do the same thing. We have a choice to make, and here's where I'm going to either thrive in this illustration that I heard from somebody else on Right Now Media, or it's going to absolutely tank. I hope this works. Are you ready? It's like the price is right when you lay out the next piece of the puzzle. You fill the gap by doing either this, assume the worst, or you fill the gap by believing the best. And how you fill that gap will have massive implications as to how you live out this thing called marriage. And here's where it gets really scary. How you show your children how they're going to live out their marriage and what the culture of your family actually looks like as you love and serve Jesus. So let me say that again. Every marriage ever created since the fall of man, since Adam and Eve took a bite of the fruit, has expectations and behavior, and there's always a gap, and it's your choice in how you fill the gap, and what you do with that choice has massive, massive, comp uh, massive realities to it. And where do you go with this? It's the question for all of us. Where do you go with this? How do you fill that gap? Your spouse has these subset of qualities you thought you could change, and then you realize, oh my goodness, it's actually true. One sinner plus one sinner equals two sinners. And all of a sudden, you go negative, or maybe you went negative before you even got married, and there's this cycle taking place. When you assume the worst in that cycle, it feeds on itself, and the crazy part is, it's not even that you're wrong. Right? Don't, don't miss this. this. This is a key nugget. Here's the craziest part about this illustration. Look at this. Here's the expectations and the behavior. There's believing the best. There's assuming the worst. And this really isn't about right or wrong. Here, look at me when I tell you this. Both of these things are fundamentally true. Can you relate to that? Like if you assume the worst, you could probably be right. If you believe the best, you could, you could probably be right as well. It's really not as much about right or wrong as it is about uh, perspective. You, you could assume the worst, 
You could celebrate the worst in your marriage, and here's what we all want, right? You can win the arguments, but in winning the argument, you can lose the most important relationship that God gave you. You can think you're winning, and you can actually lose. Paul addresses this to the church in Corinth about love. In 13, verse 4, I would say about 80% of weddings have this scripture in them, so if you're planning on getting married, you can use this one as well. Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable and it's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now check this out. Here's the last verse. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things, and love endures all things. Here's what love does, right? Love takes that same information that you can use to paint your spouse in a negative light, and it believes the best about them. And research shows us when you do that, even if you are a bit delusional and how optimistic you are towards your spouse, all of a sudden there's this spiral that goes in the direction of a healthier marriage in your life. It's like Paul and Jesus knew what they were talking about when they start talking about love being a verb, love playing out through putting someone else more, in its more important light than yourself, and then love actually being won over in your marriage by putting them first and believing for the best. Who's better at this, you or your spouse? Who's better at it? Who tends to go negative more often? That'd probably be a fight that you might not want to pick, but maybe look at it through the lens of your own negativity and your own life. Here's what I found in counseling. This one's free. That in the codependent hamster wheel that you've been running in, one partner is tending to be more negative, and the worst negativity isn't, you're like this, you're like this, you're like this. The worst negativity is the expectation, believing, assuming the worst, and then the behavior when the expectation is not met is passive aggressive, it's not even aggressive, it's not even, you always do this, it's you didn't get your way, and so now you're gonna stand back in a passive aggressive fashion, and this is the Midwestern reality, you're just gonna let it be known by your pouty eyes that you're just not content. You know, I said to be home at six, and it's 6.45, but I don't really care because I'm so loving and nice, and I'm so used to getting walked on, I'm not gonna really bring it up. I already knew that you would do that anyways. I already knew that you didn't have a good explanation, but I don't wanna talk about that. I'm just gonna put on my pouty eyes, and I'm gonna be passive aggressive. Because I already assumed and prescribed the motive that you walk in. Love always hopes. It always endures. One partner's pouting, the other partner is appeasing, and round and round it goes in a victim mentality on the hamster wheel of codependence. It is scary. It is scary what happens when the byproduct is assuming the worst. It doesn't go in a place that we want to go. It ends up in a counseling session where there is a laundry list three pages long for the counselor to somehow agree with you that your spouse is the far worse partner. That's where it goes. It goes to a place of custody that you trust me, you don't want to split. In most relationships, 
in most relationships, the person is not actively looking to disappoint you. And so when we choose to go this route, here's what's also scary, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and the byproduct is you push further and further away, and you fill those gaps with negativity. Now the cool part is this, here's how we're going to close. The cool part is this, when you put on the mind of Christ, when you take scripture and you say, this is the authority, this is the word of God, this is how I'm going to love, not just my spouse, this is how I'm going to love in all my relationships. In fact, this is how I'm going to put the gospel on display, that I'm going to believe the best for people until they show me just like that I have to think a different thing. But when they give me what's happening in their lives, I am gonna prescribe a positive motive to them and I'm gonna put my own marriage on display so that they can see this play out. I'm gonna live like Christ. Here's what the research shows us. When we communicate the best, most people will move in that direction. Right? When, we, when we prescribe the motive that's most positive and we believe the best, that most of the time, not all of the time, I know there are extenuating circumstances, but most of the time, that person who's displaying this behavior will move towards that positivity like a magnet. Because most people in their marriage want to, want to do what's right. If they, now, let me caveat this. If they're in Christ, right? If their heart's dead in sin, that's a whole different situation. But two Christians is the context of the conversation. They don't go into the marriage loving Jesus and go, you know what I really want to do? I'm going to talk about the two becoming one. I'm going to talk about putting Christ first in our life. I'm going to make the vow till death do us part. But what I really want to do is I want to be a terrible husband. Most people don't think that. And so when we have this shift in our thinking, it can be a magnet. Because, and here's the gospel application, because God has wired us in a way where our hearts are drawn towards acceptance. Here's something we say that theologically is a rub. And we've all probably said it as an evangelical. We lay out the gospel, you're far from God in your sin, you rebelled against him, you were the one in the wrong. And then we say in our gospel presentation, and now what you need to do is you need to accept Jesus. Okay? Here's a more theologically accurate statement. Jesus Christ going to the cross, dying for your sin, rising from death, providing a way for your salvation, and in the here and now where you can have a new life in Christ, here's what happened before you ever made a decision. Here's what happened. Christ accepted you. Our hearts are drawn to acceptance because that's the gospel. Before we ever even knew that we needed to repent, Christ accepted us. He's called us out of darkness into light. And so now you've had this reality where you've gone, man, I need Jesus, and I need to turn from my sins and follow him, and I need to accept him. You need to hear me say this again. This is the beauty of the gospel. It isn't anything you did to be saved. Christ already accepted you. And so he has hardwired us in a way where acceptance is something that's appealing. And Jesus accepted us, and Jesus put us our needs first in a world where he came into it and it was broken and he was born in a manger and he, he was born into all of these things in a humble, humble means. He went off the throne and down to earth and he did all of that because he had to please the Father and create a way for sin to be cast out of our life. And he did so in a way where he accepted us before we ever even knew what we were doing. 
And so now when we're born again and we make a decision to follow Jesus, understand this, Jesus already accepted you. He already called you out of darkness into light. And there is this intrinsic longing in our marriage that we are to be accepted. And it happens by the way that Jesus loves us. That we have an expectation that we believe the best and then it changes the way that we see the behavior. And when we do this, And when we do this, we show the world something that it's starving for. I was talking and praying with an elder before church. I was talking about everything going on in culture around us, and I got a text from a friend who's at a church about 200 miles away. Praise team can come back up. I'm I'm about done here. In fact, this is all extra credit. Didn't even plan on going here, but I'm going to. And there was a pastor that spoke to him, and he said, of all the kids in this church statistically, that by the time they're 18 years old, 75% will never come to this place again or any other church. That's what's happening all around us. There's a mass exodus. We could have all sorts of reasons as to why that is. But the reality is, it is what it is, unless there is repentance, unless there is transformation, unless our hearts radically changed towards the gospel. And so we, we say yes to Jesus and we fall in love with him and these are the things that separate us. How many of you know someone, it's not you, right, but how many of you know someone right now, their marriage is on the rocks? Don't raise your hand. Right? They, they text you about it. If they're the opposite sex, stop texting about it. But maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's you know it's a it's a woman who's talking to another woman. They're saying you know I I thought my marriage was this. I thought my marriage was that. I'm I'm ready to bail. And I have this other friend. But it's just you know it's just platonic. It's nothing major. And you're going oh red flag, red flag, red flag. And when they're talking about their marriage, how many of you already know this to be true? Right? They they don't know Jesus. They have expectations. They assume the worst. The behavior's displayed. And round and round and round it goes. This is what Christ is calling us to do. He's calling us to live and love different. And this is the one of the key ways we do it. This is the institution that's being attacked by culture all around us. And so when we live differently because Christ loved us differently, we put these types of things on display and we can make radical gospel impact in our community. We love like Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your truth. God, help us to live out these things. Help us to love our spouse like you love us. Jesus, we thank you for dying in our place, for giving everything so that we can have life. Help us to put you on display, to be a model to our kids, to our church family, and to our community. Help us to love like you. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.